Hello and welcome to Naturally Smart People, Season 3, Episode 2. A few years ago, when I was reading Kurt Vonnegut, The Sirens of Titan, I was taken by a particular line towards the end of the book, and it goes like this. It says, sooner or later, the magical forces of the universe would put everything back together again. They always did. Um, It's a sort of introduction, I guess, to our conversation today. Um, I was chatting last Friday with my really good friend, Professor Eric Knudsen, and we finally got together to do this recording, which we've been talking about doing for the last two years. Um, so on a cold January evening, we sat in the studio and got to sorting the world out together. Um, Eric, by way of introduction, is Professor of Film uh, Media Practice at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston. He regularly travels the world to film festivals, showing his own films from the One Day Films repertoire. Uh, His most recent feature film is called Cleft Lip, which was released to great critical acclaim in 2018. Uh, The previous film, Raven on the Jetty, won the Jury Award at the Madrid International Film Festival in 2014 and was released in 2015. Eric's new book is called Finding the Personal Voice in Filmmaking and is published by Macmillan. That's by way of introduction to the sort of academic of Eric, but the reality of Eric is much bigger, as the interview probably will illustrate. Um, I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back at the end just to point you to one or two things which might be worth following up on the back of the conversation. So, picture the scene. Here we are in the garage, stroke studio, (laughs) Uh, bottle of wine, the heater's on, Friday night, snow, cold, and away we go. Welcome, Eric. Yeah, thank Um, you. Welcome to the garage. Thank you. (laughs) What we were talking about last week, and I thought it would be quite fun to come back to, was um, partly to do with your filmmaking, I think, and the, the transitions that have gone on in that, but also the themes that have come through it over the years. And that's just that'd be fun to just knock it around with a bottle of wine on a Friday in Sounds the snow. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know? This is a, a nice chill out. Exactly. You know, it's the end of the week. It's been a monumental week. So yeah. I have a little bit well, of time I'm, out. And, I'm glad uh, to be here and to be part of your podcast, you know. Um, so this is fantastic. And so, also the, so, yeah, so... No, I was just going to say there's some synergies, obviously, between mm. what, what we do, some shared interests and, and, and concerns, and we're just coming at these things from different angles, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess one of the synergies is story-making. Yes. Story-making, storytelling. And yes. The making and the telling being different, but yes. actually quite common in the, in the threads. And, and uh, your work, let's, let's list it, writer, poet, filmmaker... Professor and teacher, lecturing. So there's at least five. Photography. Things. Photography, of course, yes. yeah. So different, quite different, but complementary elements in your own work that seed the stories to allow that thing to elaborate itself in its own way. And I suppose, you see, I started as a musician. Uh-huh. You know, and very early on started writing my own songs. I mean, literally from yeah. my early teens I was writing songs so I think that sort of poetic element was always there and of Mm. course the music then morphed into filmmaking Mm. 
and for me filmmaking is very musical you know it's it, there's a lot of synergy between filmmaking and music although people think actually particularly fiction film is more closely aligned to drama theatrical drama mm. than any other art form i i don't think so personally i think it's more closely attuned to music yeah your films resonate a lot don't they you know there's a lot of sonic movement in your films i think of it things like the water film Oh yes, you know, throughout yes. that film, that yes. constant sound. Yes, and, and, and the, but also the pattern in it. Well, I, I think about composing a film uh -huh. rather than yeah. dramatizing yeah. it. Yeah. So it is about all of these elements, you know. So the the, the 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 dramatic elements, like the performers and the actors and the actors' interaction or the characters' interaction, are just one part of a bigger picture. Mm. Mm. So when I sit down and com you know I, I think very much about composing a film. Okay, tell me through. Talk me through that as a process because I know you've just got a new script. Yes. So we, we may or may not touch the new script, <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, I don't know. It's a daft question, perhaps. Starting points. What are the things that you look out for to? Initiate well, this is very interesting because, you know, as part of my, I've just written a new book called Finding the Personal Voice in Filmmaking. Right. And that has come out of obviously years of my own practice, but also some workshops I've been doing for many years called Story Lab, where I help others develop their stories. Mm -hmm. And really the basic principle is that you can start anywhere. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's because what you do is that anything that your mind is attracted to or notices or is interested in is part of a, a deeper story or a deeper set of themes going on within you. And uh, what part of this process is about then is about opening up to that. So you're listening to yourself. Listening to myself, but I'm listening rather like we've talked about in terms of nature and the work you're doing with mm. Naturally Smart. I'm listening, you know, I, I think that the stories we tell, the, the, the sort of profound ones that last, yeah. are prototypical in nature. In other words, they exist across time and across cultures. Yeah. And that each one of us gives those stories a palpable form through our particular experience and our particular context and our particular language yeah. and form yeah. at any given time. So that part of the process of creating a story is opening up to that, to those stories that in a sense already exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe they exist outside of us in a sense. And that my, my job as a, as a creator, so to speak, is to tap into that. Yeah. And then to give that story shape and form in my time. Okay. Somebody else will take more or less the same story and do something different with it. So you bring to it cultural heritage yes. and insights. Yes. And just the feel of the day is it. Exactly. It. So there's a very emergent element of yes. that, as well as a, a methodology to yes. it. Such, yeah. So take my latest film, Cleft Lip, which yeah. is an adaptation of Sophocles' Oedipus. Yeah. In that, you know, so those I had had some concerns about, you know, our approach and relationship to the to, to the whole fertility thing, you know, mm -hmm. and we see in the Western world a kind of crisis for many people around fertility, 
hence the whole industry that's grown up around fertility treatment, which in some cases now grown into a kind of commodifying of that process, you know, into a kind of like going to a shopping mall and buying sperm and eggs and kind of essentially designing your own baby. I mean, maybe people don't realize that this is going on, but people pay money to go to certain clinics. And these things were concerning me, our kind of distance. Again, it relates to things we've talked about, about nature, that kind of break with something that is actually quite magical and mystical. That idea of the creation of a new human being and the circumstances around which that happens and the cultural constructs we've built around that sacred interaction mm. has kind of dissipated a bit in modern secular culture, I feel. So those I had those concerns, and suddenly I, I click into this Oedipus story, <laughs> which is a 2,500-year-old story. And, of course, Freud was tapping mm -hmm. into that, mm -hmm. and, you know, psychologists and so on. And I immediately see that that fundamental story about a guy who suddenly doesn't know who he is anymore or suddenly realizes that he is not who he thinks he is yeah yeah becomes relevant do you see what i mean in yeah. a in a contemporary context okay enough i've been reading dylan's chronicles oh yes and, uh, that's a, just serendipitously that's exactly one of the things he's talking about in here oh really and i highlighted this this yeah. is not pre Really? Recorded, no, I didn't know you were reading this. So he's talking in this back end of this first, I think it's the first one of the books. Yeah. yeah. And he's talking about this whole process of being an early musician in New York and yeah. Greenwich Village and all that stuff. And being under the shadow of Woody Guthrie and, and a whole load of people in, the, in yes. that period who were creating the story of that time. Yes. And he had a slight dissonance with this, but he mm -hmm. couldn't hear himself yeah. because there's so much noise. Yes. And so he was then um, almost charging himself to change, but by yes. forcing the change, he couldn't change. Yes. And then, it, and then he, he went off, the back end of this book, he's talking about um, a few people he met. And one thing he did was he started to draw, started to paint, ah, okay. completely outside of the things he'd yes. done before. And yes. suddenly he found himself. Yes. And then he found his, himself as a musician. Yeah. You know? And so the story, in a sense, with him was the idea of breaking from the thing that he was probably aiming to be, which yes. was a singer. Yes. By accident. Yes. Finding something that was enabling him to be to, to connect differently to the world around him. To the people that he was working with at the time, and then come back in with a different persona, exactly. a different presence. Exactly. And he says something quite interesting. He said, "My perspective on all that was about to change. The air would soon shoot up in intensity and become more potent. My little shack in the universe was about to expand into some glorious cathedral." Yes. At least in songwriting terms. Wow. But he found it by accident. Yes. And I like that. I just think this thing about uh, yes. the the serendipitous nature of yep. story. Yeah, but then fitting within uh, much bigger frames than we necessarily tune into yes. very often. Yes, so exactly. going back in time in history of for, for the Oedipus story, yes. the, I know in a lot of your other work you've done the same thing. You come into you thread stories in from other yes. places. 
it's something that I'm returning to more overtly now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it's quite clear to me that those who, who shape the future really understand the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like the story of Osiris and Horus, isn't it? That, that you know, Osiris is, is scattered by Seth, you know, that the, the Satan scatters him all over Egypt. And then Isis goes and finds him and puts him back together again. Yeah. But he's blind, you know. And Horus is blinded in his fight with Seth. But he takes his one eye and he goes back to his father and puts that eye in his father. Uh, yeah, yeah. And together they rule Egypt in a new way. So it's this idea of going back into the past in order actually to shape the future. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's almost like, you know, this old saying that that that, that young men reject their fathers and embrace their grandfathers. Mm-hmm. So if you go into, you know, you see Andy Warhol, for example, his flat, when he died, they showed some pictures of his flat. It was all antiques. He didn't have a single mon- modern painting in his private collection. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and you realize when you look at Copernicus, how he was studying Pythagoras mm-hmm. 1,500 years before him and, and discovered some interesting... See, that raises some troubled thoughts in my head about the moment moment we're in. The transitory sort of nature of day-to-day life and the the lack of connectedness to the past. Yes. You know, almost rootless. If you see every, you know, you and I were in Australia together. What a wonderful experience, which I hope we'll come and talk about a little bit. But if you see that in every one of these indigenous cultures... The idea of connecting to, oh, thank you, the idea of connecting to your heritage and your ancestors Mm. and also caring about those who are not yet come Mm. is a fundamental part of the present. Mm. And when it's lost, and it's quite brutal in some of those communities. Yes. It's like severing the limb from... Exactly. Not just the person, but the place. Yes. So when we talk about stories, if you if you take it into the sort of religious sphere and cult, cultural religion, you know, which I think is what religion is as opposed to spirituality, you see that you know you take the the, the Christian uh, religion and you realize it's actually made up of a bunch of stories. It's a collection of stories that have been selected over time to represent a set of values. And in those stories, people are finding their identity, you know, in terms of understanding what am I doing here in this world and why am I here and what am I supposed to do? And, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they look to those stories as a kind of a guide. And those stories are reaching way back into prototypical spaces (laughs) that that go go back a long time. I think it was you that put me on to Ben Okri. Yes, you know, the, the stories that are the, the the carrier of cultural memories. Yes, and the the framing of realities of cultures. You know. Yes. So, I guess where we're where our interplay lies is perhaps in that relationship between the story and the time element. Yes. So the, the, the significance of time as a factor in our understanding of what's going on around us. Exactly. But not 
in the sense of it just being a linear thing, but being a, a, a pattern yes. that, that repeats in different ways in different generations, but, but enables us, if we look at it, to give us some insights into what's really going on exactly under the surface. Yeah. And, and then it also allows us perhaps to then be critical of the current sorts of narratives yes. that are thrown at us yes. simply as a matter of consumption. Yes. You know, just stuff that arrives on there. Well, you know what the French call entertainment? Distraction. Distraction. Huh? <laughs> That's entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? When you talk about naturally smart mm. and you the, the sort of workshops I've seen you doing with people, you know, in, for example, in the school in, mm. in Docker River in, in, in Australia, mm. and you. you in a sense, what you're trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to reconnect people with having a kind of relationship with nature mm. that is much more than about simply exploiting it. Mm. it. It is about having a kind of co-design relationship, a kind of, um, you know, we are part of nature. Yeah, it's an acknowledgement of an intelligence that's, yes. not, that's not us. Yes. And an understanding that, as yet, we haven't found a way to, to codify that intelligence. Yes. So it makes sense to the human narrative. Yes. In a way that is ultimately beneficial to all of the different intelligence systems on the planet. Yes. So we're one, of amongst, we're one amongst multiple intelligences. And... That, that comes as a bit of a shock to a lot of people. I noticed recently on the television, actually, that a number of historians seem to be exploring a particular line of that when they're looking at ancient human civilizations yes. and saying, oh, you know, what a surprise. These people just as, seem just as clever as we are today. It, it, as if exactly. it's like a revelation. Yes, okay. yes. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> personally, I think we've got a lot of dating completely wrong around some yeah. of the artifacts that are yeah. in, this, in this world. And yeah. there's somehow, uh, I think our history is a lot longer than people are acknowledging. Yeah, and that might just be part of the story that yes. we're being told at the moment, exactly. which is interesting in itself, exactly. isn't it? You know, that what you are or not allowed to to know yeah. in terms of historical time is, is to a certain extent usefully manipulated yeah. perhaps. Yeah. And I think there is a kind of ideology at the moment certainly, I mean I know across the world there are different ideologies operating at this moment in time, but where we are in, in Western Europe, North America, there are certain ideologies that, that wants us to look at history in very, very particular ways mm. that reaffirm contemporary ideas about who's a victim and who's an oppressor and all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's very problematic. And what troubles me is the fact that the younger generation, you know, when we're talking about connecting to the past, you know, when you look at all of this mental illness that's going on at the moment, when you look at how, you know, some of these young people are struggling, we see this evidence on the, on the internet and so on. There's a kind of, there's nothing worse than being stuck in the middle of a universe that is infinite and not having any sense of why you're here and what is the meaning of everything. And if you're being taught that the meaning is simply to satisfy your own immediate desires and 
to demonstrate your status in terms of material success and so on and so forth, and you can't see beyond that. I think that's leading a lot of people into a crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely an existential yeah crush. Yeah, it's coming, yeah. Come connect that with what you're doing around nature, where most people grow up in a city now. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you're born. Okay, we might go to the park and we might go to the zoo once in a while, but mm -hmm. the closest people get to nature is watching an Attenborough show, yeah, and then uh, uh, touching a tree in the mm -hmm. local park. That's yeah. not. That's all managed and manicured mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, nature on some levels is cruel and dangerous and and it's and, brutal. Yeah. and brutal yeah. as well as magical and wonderful you know mm -hmm. and and everything in between and we we only live in a world that is completely manufactured by ourselves mm -hmm. nature's now an entertainment yeah well it's certainly at the moment it appears yes. to be the next you know the latest form of entertainment i think it will turn itself on us and bite us for that oh it will but um yeah i i there's a sort of sequence that seems to me to have gone on over the last few years, which is initially, you know, self-gratification through whatever you do. You buy yes. loads of things, you do all these, yes. purchase everything you possibly purchase, and still nothing comes. Yes. So then you join clubs. Yes. So you you have this sort of form of well-being that's based around physical well-being. Yes, exactly. So you join a running club, or yes. you join a Saturday morning belt round. You take a pub. few vitamins. And yeah, <laughs> and, and, and again, but, it, but, it's, but it, the, the club element's interesting because it takes people from themselves to a group. Yes. But they're still being entertained. And yes. it seems that the thread between the different things, or the story, if you like, is an entertainment story. Yes. And that's the thing that drives our age. Yeah. And then you go to the next stage of that, which is, you know, we have, we have theme parks. And yeah, another form of entertainment which takes us right to the edge of what's yeah. acceptable in terms of fear. Yeah, and so you drop through great big holes in Alton Towers or yeah. whatever it is, and, and you know, then, and then yeah. you, sorry, then then you've got another level which is that you have that in the movie world where you've got, um, and, and Dan Carlin did an amazing piece on this in one of his podcasts recently. It's about ten hours exposition yeah. of. The, the old Roman systems of entertainment going into the point where they, they had no more ways in which they could bring the people to come into the Col to the Colosseum and the, the, the gladiators had become dull and boring. So what did they do? They invent another form of entertainment, which is the, the, the killing place. Where exactly. You, you know, in scene one, you come on board and you're, you're acting the performance of how... You know for a fact that by scene three, this actor is going to be murdered on yes, stage, and yes. that was the means by which they got the crowds back. Yes. Now it, it, it seems like you know we we're not at that point, but the, the 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 sequence of things that human beings have done to entertain themselves over the last sort of thirty, forty, fifty years, and it's been very quick in terms of its commodifying of yes. ent entertainment, is reaching its crisis point because. Nature is not an entertainment. No. And and what becomes very interesting is the parameters by which we manage the, the understanding of nature. I don't think that they can be boxed in the way that nature will do what it does. No. And so inevitably we have to go back and ask the question, well, what the hell is this? How, yes. are we, how do we relate to this differently? Yes. Then we get to yes. this other story you're talking yes. about, I think, which is... I mean, much, much more um, profoundly explored through time mm. and, and uncoupling almost from the, 
the preoccupations of the moment. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the moment... I mean, a couple of things that strike me as are real problems. One was this word you mentioned, fear. Mm. And, mm. <clears throat> and out of that and connected to that is, is this kind of what I call a spiritual poverty. You know, that I think there are many problems that we've got in our society that cannot be solved simply on a kind of physical level. Yeah. There needs to be a fundamental change in how individuals re respond to their relationship of fear. Mm -hmm. And that's like all sorts of fears, like the, you know, the fear of being alone, the fear of, you know, of being different or whatever it might be. And when you look at some of these ancient stories, you know, whether it be the stories that St. Paul tells and so on and so forth, this mm -hmm. thing about fear is a critical one they keep talking about. He says one of the most important attributes for somebody is courage. You know, he talks about love mm -hmm. and he talks about courage. Those two qualities are, are critical for us to solve a lot of problems. Do you mean uh, courage in terms of resolve? Yes, I mean, we are, if there's one thing that Jesus tried to teach people, you see it again and again in what he says. He, he, the, the, the word that I see most frequently that he says is, do not be afraid. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah, yeah. Do not fear. Yeah. You know, and we have to stand up to this kind of great existential challenge of mm -hmm. infinity. Mm -hmm. But not only that, we have to stand up to people who are killing us as well, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Or, or when we are doing things that we know are wrong, or if there are things happening in society or amongst our friends that we know are wrong, we are so fearful of lots of things. We're even fearful of death. Yeah. So you, you look at something like a simple thing like our policy towards the National Health Service. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's a bottomless pit because, and it's bottomless because people are driven by such fears that they're so terrified of the idea of death that they'll just chuck money at it. Yeah. It, it is Orwellian. Yes. It's in the National Health Service. Yes. It's the National Illness Service. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, so, so, and again, you, you could look at this fear of, the question around life and yes. fear. Yes. You know, our, our, the commodification of life yes. makes death absolutely the worst possible thing. Exactly. Whereas you know, there are plenty of people in time, in history, yes. who yes. have not really felt that that's any exactly. problem. It's no impediment. It's just because a part of another way of connecting. Exactly. Because in some way or other, they have understood what the eternal life means for them on a personal level. Hmm. They have understood that they are part of a much bigger story. And although we might, obviously, we all have our immediate fears of death and so on, yeah. because otherwise we wouldn't be a species. Yeah. But on, a, on an existential level, people have had a much greater sense of the fact that it's okay, it's okay, Eric, because actually there are all these people who are before you you are in this moment, and there are going to be all of these people after you, and you play your little role mm. in this big story. Mm. But if the story becomes about 
us in this material present and we don't understand how it connects to the past or how it might connect to the future and it's all about us yeah. me 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 that's the terror that's that the terror comrades terror that's the yeah. terror yeah no wonder yeah. people go into emotional mm -hmm. and existential crises mm -hmm. if that's where they think the meaning of life is mm -hmm. because it's it's another meaningless pit yeah you know, you, you'll never go anywhere. Other you never than go down. anywhere. Yeah. So my, yeah. my, I feel my job as a storyteller is to, you know, and I don't think this is a new problem. Because if you look at some of these old stories, uh, e even Oedipus or, you know, old biblical stories, Islamic stories, mm -hmm. stories from the Far East, actually they've been talking about these things mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. There's nothing new about these crises. Uh, we we think, you know, we are the bee's knees, and and somehow, you know, our forefathers weren't as sophisticated. You mentioned this but earlier. But that's the ego of the moment. Yes. Oh, it's just, yeah, <laughs> the bravado. And yeah. Yeah. But my, I see my role as a storyteller really is to reconnect, rather like you see your role as helping to reconnect people with that natural environment. I see my role as connecting people back to their spirituality in a sense. And I don't mean that in a kind of religious sense in mm -hmm. terms of in terms of a particular religious dogma, mm -hmm. although my imagery mm -hmm. is very Christian because that's how I grew up. Mm -hmm. You know, we all live in and work in, within a, a cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. But it's to provide stories that where people feel that they're reconnecting with something bigger than it's themselves. It's interesting because when we were out in the desert, what was that, two years ago yeah. now, in, in Docker River yeah. in the Laroon Bay. The, the, the presence of the stories was very strong there and, mm. and continues to be so. I mean, it, it has its troubles, but it's one of those places where there are m important members of those communities to, that carry those stories yeah. forward, both old people and younger people. Yes. And there's an acknowledgement in that cultural group that that matters. Yes. And and coming back into the Western sort of history or present moment, you know, the the it does raise the question. You know, I suppose you know, it's exploring that role. You know, what what is the role of the storyteller now, and and in in doing this, you know, it, yes. It, it's because it's more than just a, a product that's created. Yes. It's actually a, it's a, it's playing a role that's actually quite salient at the moment, isn't yes. it? where there is so much disconnect. I mean, yes. I, I can't remember a time, really, in, in my lifetime, and it's you know getting older. <laughs> I used to be able to not say that. And You're I'm, not that I old. I can certainly say it now. <laughs> Remember a time when I've noticed there's been so much um, polarity of, yeah. of of the sort of narratives going on at yes. the political level, oh, and, and, yes. and, and, and the lack of dis lack of connection between groups that previously yes. at least attempted to put some connection in. Yes, and and you do wonder therefore whether there's a new place that the storyteller, the story maker that role rises in importance because it it becomes a glue 
yeah. at a point when everything else is falling apart. You know, the, yes, no, in that sense, the absolutely. Spiral, you know? absolutely. But I think, first of all, everybody's a storyteller. Uh. Yeah. Everybody's constantly yeah. telling stories, whether you're just yeah, yeah. recounting what happened the, the day before or <laughs> you're, you're, you know, even the accountant is a storyteller with the annual accounts of a particular company telling the mm -hmm. story through the narrative form of, 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 of the books, you know. Mm -hmm. I suppose where you have what I would call poets mm. is that if you didn't have these... I don't want to use the word professional because it's got nothing to do with those who are making a mm. living out of it or whatever. Mm. But the poets, as opposed to colloquial language, have, I think, a particular role. And that is that part of their role is to renew the language in which people articulate these stories. Because if we didn't, if the language didn't evolve, mm. and if we didn't start to look at, you know, how many poems have been made about written about how beautiful a rose is throughout the history of mankind, yeah? Mm -hmm. Loads. But if we kept saying that rose is beautiful and that was the only way we expressed it over time, then it would start to become meaningless and the language would die. Mm -hmm. But I think what the poet does is that the poet is continually renewing that language to allow and evolving the language that other people will then use mm -hmm to articulate their relationship to things. So the poet has a role to make us look at that rose again with fresh eyes mm. because they're using the language in new and interesting ways, in part. And also, we might have forgotten that the rose is there mm. and need reminding. Mm. Mm. And, you know, so various things like that. I think, you know, there are those who are kind of working on it in, in a more in a more specific way as storytellers that's kind of what we're doing but in a sense ordinary people mm. do it as well mm. yeah that's the lovely thing about it you don't have to be an expert everybody's no. an expert exactly this, because we get up and we tell stories yes. all day yes it's just we might not label it like that but but we need to keep telling you know if you if you but, look at yeah, sorry, yeah. just to pick up that point about the poet, I think what you're getting to though is that there are particular people perhaps who then play a, a more poignant role in yes. this, who almost tease the essence of this out and just yes. point it back at people. Yes. It's like a mirror. Yes. He's saying, look. Exactly. That's what Shakespeare said, you know, about so, the plays. Well, there you go. Yeah, in Hamlet, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, a, a play is like holding up a mirror to its, its audience, or whatever word he used, so that scorn can see her own features and blah, 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 blah. Uh -huh. In other words, it is, that's what he tried to do in Hamlet. He tried, he brought in the players so that his mother and that bastard who married her yeah. uh, and killed his dad, yeah. he was trying to get them to see what they'd done. Right. right. It didn't work, but, but that was what he said the function of the play bringing in the professional actors were, you know, that was their function. Just to hold To up. hold up the mirror. Uh, and in a sense, that's what we're doing, because sometimes we lose track, you know, as, as a culture or a society, we, you know, we've got busy lives, and also we get stuck in a certain language. Mm -hmm. We don't see things clearly. Mm -hmm. That's why we need our poets, and, and I, I use the word poets yeah, in the widest sense. Yeah, um, what's his name? Oh, Jeremy... 
I'm about to come to him in too much wine already. <laughs> he died today. Oh, the uh, the um, yeah, I know who you mean. Hobbes was it? Um, yeah, it'll come. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, we'll put it at the end because yeah. he was a wonderful, wonderful example of that in terms of the ability to be able to like a like a missile just pick up the moment and yeah. s point it back at people and say, look, this is this is a problem. You yes. know, deal with it. Think yes. about this. But he did it in such a clever way. He yes. used comedy. Yes, he used exactly. And, and and that's what I mean by different forms. Everybody yeah. has their language, has their form, has their yeah. Yeah. their yeah. time. You yeah. know, when you talk about time, mm. and um, and and the poets sit there and have this role. I feel mm. that that helps to rejuvenate, may help us relook, resee, help us rejuvenate our language, help us. Um, mm. You see that for me, that's where forests play out a time. Yeah mirror yeah because you walk into a forest and you look at a particular type of tree and you'll see say a european lime tree like the one at milmo oh yes that beautiful hundreds tree. and hundreds of years old yes and, and you suddenly see something that's transcended the moment you get way yeah. beyond your own lifetime yeah but it's been there through history through recent history but it's also connected back in time yeah and exactly so, you're looking at hundreds and then thousands of years back. Yes. And and the the story of that place can yes. be explored through the lens of that Absolutely. that structure, that that form of intelligence. Absolutely. So this is where the overlaps become very really quite fascinating, yeah. you know, and then and then the threads the threads that connect those things be, to me are the things that give us a forward-looking optimism exactly because there's ways forward with this that we can explore and develop exactly and to go so the the presence of the human people who are capable of picking the mirror up and pitching it back yeah. in yeah gets more and more important at times of massive amounts of noise exactly. jeremy hardy sorry so just, just hardy kind of i knew something with an h okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, but but I think he yeah. you know, he's a, he was a great example. Yeah, and, and I I think you're quite right, Paul. And the thing is that you know when you look at these old trees and you, you know, I I I think a fundamental part of any education hmm. has to be this kind of historical thing, you know. Hmm. And I mean that in the natural sciences as well, you know, in terms hmm. of you know, the foundation for a good, well-rounded human being from an educational point of view. And perhaps it's no coincidence that the people who end up at the top of our societies and running them, they've all studied the classics and they've all studied the natural mm -hmm. sciences. They've all they've got a good grounding in an intellectual history and a scientific history. I think you hold them up in too much esteem, Eric. I would give them very little time. A lot of the people that run this. No, I'm not, yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying looking at it from that point of view. But even when you look at, I'm not even talking about the politicians or people like that, but the kind of cultural leaders. You know, people, okay. people who are shaping, who are shaping our society and who somehow bubble up to the top of that. They're all, you know, I'm talking about, you know, even Fry or whoever, you know, they they all know their They're history. They're smart guys in terms of the, yeah, the, the, 
attention to the significance of the past. Exactly. And its presence in the moment. The moment exactly. The psyche of the moment. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter. Unfortunately, our politicians yeah, mostly I, I, don't. Have no, but I. But do you know that the majority of politicians in Parliament, their subject was history. Is that right? Yeah, it used to be PPE. Mm-hmm. But I think the current Parliament, the majority of people studied history. At, in terms of the most favourites, not the majority, mm-hmm. the most popular subject was history at undergraduate level. So lots of historical lawyers. <laughs> well, they might have gone into law. There are also lots of lawyers, of course, mm-hmm. but they might have gone in to do that uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them uh, la- later on. But you know what? Uh, sorry, so, Paul. So if yeah. I'm thinking about film, yeah. you know, and I'm thinking about teaching young people when I was teaching and so on, the great one of the greatest challenges was that you get this bunch of young people coming in, and their knowledge of film was only five years old, mm. and then they'll come up with a great idea, and they'll think. Because of the times we live in, they have an arrogance about the past. They'll think, oh, this is a new original idea. And I'll say, oh, you know, somebody, there's this filmmaker in 1929 who was also <laughs> thinking along those lines. Maybe you should have a look at that. Yeah. And therefore, I see one of my most important roles as a teacher is to, in creative ways, make sure that people understand that history that they're going to build on. Because that is what they're going to do. Otherwise, they can't shape the future. They'll just be doomed to repeat the past if they don't understand it. There was a good example of that recently. with the, You know the film The Revenant? Yes. Which got all those Oscars. And yes. That guy crawling around in the mud after yes. being mauled by a bear yes. and all that stuff. Anyway, by chance, I was on some thing on the internet on a trip somewhere, I think I was in China, and um, I came across this film with Burt Reynolds. Yes. I think it was Burt Reynolds. Anyway, it was fantastic, yeah. but it was basically the same exactly. film made 20, 30, exactly. well, 40 years earlier. Exactly. And, and uh, he was crawling through the mud, but in a different way. Yes. In that there was a lot more attention to his understanding as a person who lived in the time in that environment as a trapper. He understood which plants to eat. Exactly. And little things like that were quite interesting in the yeah. whole process of why he survived. It yeah. wasn't just the fact he could crawl very no. successfully. Well, which, you know, I think the revenant will be forgotten very quickly. Yeah. It's all about technique. Mm. And what mm. was stunning about the film was its technique. Mm. But I think you're quite right that as a it, fundamental story, the, it wasn't very sophisticated. Before. Yeah, and yeah. it's been done before. <laughs> you know, you could say that's a prototypical story. You know, mm. Mm. Um, there's a guy called Christopher Booker who who wrote a book called The Seven Basic Plots, and he's arguing that there are only basically seven mm. prototypical stories, and he makes a good argument for, and he gives great examples of these different, these prototypical stories appearing in different forms across different across time you know so you, you 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 pick something like well let's pick one of the most popular like you know rags to riches mm-hmm. the uh, you know and of course uh, cinderella comes to mind yeah yeah <laughs> that that whole idea of somebody starting at the bottom and then somehow they make it to the top you know slumdog millionaire mm-hmm. or you know um, 
Billy Elliot or whatever. And that, so I think this kind of revenge story, this kind yeah. of survival and re revenge story is also uh, a prototypical story of some kind. So I've got to ask this question because it sort of keeps coming up in my head recently. And it's it came from talking with um, Andrew Hargreaves, who um, is a musician and um, he, his music is originally from The Boats, which is our introductory music. So okay, yeah. Andrew also does this amazing thing called uh, Tape Loop Orchestra, okay. which is this uh, layers and layers of like ambient sound. And we went to see a show of his recently, it was absolutely wonderful. Wow. Layers on layers of sound, but in between of which, on the screen on the front of you, are just hundreds of images of rooms yes. that he's collected, photographs. Oh really? Rooms. Of rooms? No people, just rooms. Wow. Over the last, I guess, a hundred years or so. Really? Very um, oh, alienating. What do you mean a hundred? You mean he? Just, just he's not a hundred years no, old. No, no, no. He's collected photographs. Oh, okay. Around okay. About, up to about a hundred years old. Okay. And he beams them on the wall and you, you see these pictures and as, as this show unfolds there's just a, a series of photographs played into this soundscape and so i love the sound it was fabulous and one of the things about it that i was really interested in was again back to time you know modern movies have a formula for time yes. don't they? you know there's certain things that happen at 20 minutes or whatever and you can almost yeah, like the classical predict stuff, something's yeah. going to happen and yeah. it's like oh for the love yeah, of god let's yeah. do something different <laughs> <laughs> So you have to go watch a French film partly yeah, because you yeah. don't understand it <laughs> and you're in 18 minutes or 24 yeah, yeah, minutes yeah. or whatever. But, anyways, yeah. but, but I, I started to think, well, given that we have technologies now where you don't need to do this, yes. what, what's the possibilities of that? To break the time, to change it, to do something different with it. I mean, I know the new film that you're moving towards. Yes. Doing, I don't know. Are you up for talking about well, it? Well, a little bit because it's still early it's days. It's very, very interesting, and I love this idea of episodes. Yes, yes. And then you start thinking, oh, what if you didn't release that as a whole film? You yes, did, you, did, you drop them in, and then it becomes a film yes. as it over time it creates itself almost. Yes. It? So you don't need to do everything at once. No, that's true. You know? And you know what? Often authors used to write little, you know, like the Dostoevsky's of this world used mm. to write chapters one yeah, at yeah. a time and send it off to the magazine to be published. And yeah. I suppose that's the equivalent of a series mm. in a sense. Yeah. And 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 people, you know, filmmakers like Robert Altman did mm. kind of very intricate uh, because in some ways life is a series of interlocking stories, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're right that the classical stories are very linear and cause and effect because what they're trying to do is to get, engage our particular type of emotions. Mm. Mm. And some of my research at the university is about how you tell stories in a different way to appeal to our more what I call participatory emotions or spiritual emotions, which are different to, mm. to the self-assertive emotions like fear and anger mm. and, and uh, sexual arousal and so on. There are a different set of feeling, what I call feelings, which are more about awe, longing, love, you know, the kind of love that is mm -hmm. about self-sacrifice, which these are feelings that are about letting yourself go to a bigger whole. Mm -hmm. And to tell a story that appeals to people through those feelings, you have to structure it very differently. It's different. Yeah, yeah, and that's the kind of thing I'm interested in exploring. But you are quite right because you, you, earlier you talked about the fairground ride, uh, 
And, the, you know, it's no coincidence that Hollywood also own fairground rides because they're in the business of getting people's adrenaline running around their system and them sitting on the edge of their seat thrilled. Mm. Yeah? Mm. And so the, 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 the fairground ride and the Hollywood movie are doing the same thing because people become addicted to adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they like that arousal. And that's why you also have, you know, sexual arousal mm -hmm. is very much also part of these, you know, the hot men and the hot women mm -hmm. and the sexual scene. This is all very much part of the... Of it's the, the entertainment industry. Yeah. And I guess where we're exploring these ideas is, is it's not an entertainment industry. It's a different thing entirely. And yeah. it's starting to, to ask... To start with, it slows you down because you can't rush it. Yes. Um, you, and this is partly why I'm intrigued by the idea of, I don't know, it just came to me on the, yes. whenever I was, yes. probably coming back from Scotland with my hands stitched up and thinking, oh, oh my God. what have I done to myself you, this you, time? You stared mortality in the face <laughs> for a moment there. <laughs> lose half your finger, yeah. And you sort of, yeah, look death in the face. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, um, but that it's Brechtian. That's the thing. It's episodic. Yes. So you can then start to think, okay, well, there are ways in which you could structure this that don't have to fit the convention. That is that true. Could actually challenge that quite is true. significantly the narratives yes. that we've got used to hearing, which actually now we're not even hearing. Yes. Because the entertainment industry will never solve it. Yes. They'll never get but us to that point. The yet. thing is, the thing about entertainment. I think there's good entertainment and there's mm. bad entertainment. You know, because. When, we, when you say entertainment, at the end of the day, human beings are very emotional beings. I and mean, we are predominantly emotional. Whatever people mm. think about the intellect, our emotions dominate. Mm. And the, the type of emotions that do dominate are the emotions that are driving our instincts for survival. You know, so it's things like fear, anxiety, uh, for, 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 in, in order to procreate, of course, sexual arousal these emotions are very powerful in us as beings. So I don't think it's unnatural for storytellers to take advantage of those emotions in, in order to engage people yeah. in the, the things they want to say. But it's the things they want to say that are important. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And not necessarily the way they're, they're, they're doing it. I think it's okay to grab people's emotions, mm. but it's what you're doing with it. Mm. Mm. It, what they're doing with it is they just want to fleece you for some money yeah. and they don't care about what, what people are saying or what you're trying to what new insights you're trying to take your audience to or whatever they just want to grab you by the, the emotions yeah. Yeah, and then fleece you for the money mm. dump you and then get you into the next one mm. that's the problem but I think it's alright to grab somebody's emotions and then tell them a story that's going to have a profound effect mm. on them. Mm. You need to almost stop them in their tracks. It's it's. Uh, it's I, I love Coleridge, and it's the ancient mariner, isn't it? Yeah. You know, someone that catches you with his beady eye and says, "Just hang on a minute, I've got a story to tell you." And then an hour and a half later. Yeah. You, Holy moly, what's yeah. this guy going through? Water, water everywhere yeah, and not a drop to drink. It's a good job we've got some wine. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a wonderful it's line, wonderful. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
Oh, oh yeah. my God. And you know what? I also, you know, talking about wonderful lines and poetry and great authors and oh, I mean, I just feel, I, there are certain authors, certain pieces of work that just so excite me. I love Robert Frost, for example, mm -hmm. and I and I, there's there's one of his poems which is only two lines long, and it's like it goes like this: We dance around in a circle and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows and when I think I think yeah as a filmmaker as a storyteller that's what I'm doing I'm doing this dance you know mm -hmm. and this dance obviously is set in time and has a form but there's a secret in there that I will never mm -hmm. uh, actually get mm -hmm. but what I can do is I can circle around and I can take my audience with me and I can circle around it and hopefully they'll sense it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Frost is amazing. There's, there's a, it, it's not dissimilar. There's a lovely piece he wrote about the idea of the um, civilization being a clearing in the forest. Yes. And that we've cleared this space and we can see ourselves inside this space, but we're terrified of the dark forest encroaching in on us. It's and it's sick. all around us, you know? And, and actually what we really, really, could they be exploring is what's the relationship on that edge with that forest? Exactly. We start to move that way. So I what we should do, Paul, is we should take that poem and that metaphor and that poem and develop a kind of transdisciplinary project across mm -hmm. natural sciences and the arts mm -hmm. that kind of explores that idea because yeah. that is that is the issue. But my, my problem is that the, a lot of people, particularly the young people, are growing up in an environment where they only see the clearing. That's right. So yeah, the moment there's a, a shadow, a whiff of a, of a dark side, yeah. they're having a mental crisis, a mental breakdown. Well, the, the clearing is the story for everybody at the yes. moment, isn't it? Yes. And actually, the, the, the edge of that clearing might be at least a starting yes. point yes. For, for something different. Yes. And certainly that step into the forest is... For most people, yes. just too many steps. When you look at many stories, like the Grimm brothers or H.C. Mm -hmm. Anderson or many of the prototypical stories, they are exactly about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. That here you are in your safe little world, but somehow you then encounter a darkness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a shadow, what Jung yeah. called the shadow, which yeah. could be a darkness only in yourself. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily yeah. physically mean a darkness. Yeah. And that life is about how you deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're back to the resolve. You're back to the resilience. And yes. The, and the, um, what was the word you said earlier? There was a lovely word to capture that. Well, you know, resilience, you know, you have a situation where, you know, there's a lot of people talking about foreign aid and so on and dealing with humanitarian crises and so on and we just think on a materialistic level mm -hmm. but imagine a woman who sets off from South Sudan marching fleeing from war and famine because of war because famine mm -hmm. only exists because of war and then she arrives in Eritrea or Kenya or somewhere like that Let's imagine she starts off with, and I happen to know this is a true story, mm. 
with four children and she arrives with none. Now, you can give her a blanket mm. and you can give her food and you can put her in a tent. But is that enough? So when we talk about resilience, now I bet you that the only reason why a woman like that will survive is because of her religious faith. Imagine if that woman had been completely secular. Now I'm just I'm just imagining now, yeah, because mm -hmm. I don't know. We have to talk mm -hmm. about individuals, of mm -hmm. course. Imagine can 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 we cope with something like that if we live in a world where we have only a secular view about our own satisfaction? How how would we cope with something like that? If we weren't seeing so therefore, when you talk about humanitarian aid, for example, and resilience, you have to talk more than about the material world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, Philippe Couture, that works over in the Philippines, uh, teaches permaculture a lot over there. He, he did a lot of work in um, Haiti after the earthquake. And... Um, he was telling me this story about the significance of hope. He said the, the you know the aid organisations had come in and they'd done what they did and they dropped you know airdrops and all sorts of things and they put in shelters and they put in food management systems and water systems and somewhat disastrously tried to put sanitation systems into place but he said the thing that they completely missed was a place where people could get together and celebrate their humanity in that place and celebrate the opportunity to hope for what could come next and as soon as they started to do that he said that things started to turn and, uh, and, and you do sense that in many communities. We saw that in Australia um, in the desert and I've, I've seen it in Somalia, I've seen it in Haiti, I've seen it in numerous places around the planet where crises have occurred and existential crises goes with that. If and people that get through it, yeah, tend to be those who deal with the moment, but they deal with it in a way that allows them to step out of the moment. Exactly. It's almost like they disconnect. Exactly. But they're not dis disengaged. They're just capable of living with that moment. Yes. And thinking beyond it to where they're going to be. Yes, next. exactly. And, and, and they but trust the space. Yeah. You know, and they're not something. just thinking about themselves. Exactly. No, no, not at all. No. And no. I think it was a wonderful experience going to see the work that you did in, in, in Docker River, you know, where we arrived in a school that struck me, and I'm not an expert in this area, but that struck me as somewhat dysfunctional mm. in a culture, and we can talk about that in a minute, mm. that, that is dysfunctional. Uh, really strange to see that in, a, in, a, in one of the richest countries in the world. Mm. But through this project you did of growing trees and engaging the kids and the staff in the school in the process of engaging with nature in a very simple way, you know, just growing some trees in the school grounds, 
having some strategy around it, imagining the spaces. That struck me as very, very um, important because actually the school was kind of rejuvenated as a consequence of that. Yeah, and apparently now the orange trees are huge. Wow. I mean, they are huge. Yeah. And all of the lemon trees and all that stuff, it all grew. Yeah. The ones that didn't grow are on the edges, which are the yes. ones we said wouldn't grow. Yes. The thing was screwed up to do that. Yes. But yeah, the... I, I agree. I mean, it did. It it gave. It lifted the possibilities of what could happen, and that wasn't me. I mean, that was the, the a lot of the old ladies. No, in but the they town, got involved. A lot of the old ladies in the town kicked that discussion off and said, "We want to grow food here because we can't forage anymore the way we used to." Yeah. And that was really interesting to just have that discussion with them about the historical understanding of yes. the place, and you wouldn't. I wouldn't know what I could forage in my backyard no. here, for example, but they knew exactly what distances and what plants were available. Yeah. And they were watching it change because of the changing climate and the yes. changing foraging of animals and things like that. And the knock-on effect was they said, this is no longer tenable as yes. we're doing this. So yes. We need to grow something. Exactly. And that's the first ever example that I came across in, in, in communities have worked with like that where there was a significant shift towards planting trees yes. in the space yes um, and then you know the practicalities of that you, you just plug into them yes. local science don't yes. you? You, yes. people know what to do yes. in order to use the land and the soil's very rich yeah it's water that's yeah. the key question yeah. as soon as you can get those trees hooked to the water system yeah they're off yeah and it just happens to be quite deep aquifers, so yeah. they have to bung the roots down the wrong way. But it, they do it, and they work. And now it's just gone crazy. They're yeah. going like mad, yeah. You know, I can kind of imagine, <laughs> I'm just using my imagination to, you know, that experience we had in Docker River, mm. where we're essentially working with a group of people who not very long ago were nomads, actually kind of hunter-gatherers. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is, you know, this thing about growing and them shifting their mindset to growing stuff. Now, you know, 12, around 12,900 years ago, we were talking earlier about, you know, the fact that something happened and there was kind of a shift to agriculture and so on. But some, some, some uh, archaeologists are <coughs> saying that this was as a consequence of, a, uh, of an earlier generation teaching people how to do that. You know, and then I was recently just reading about the Black Death in in in, in Europe, um, uh, specifically in Britain around thirteen four years, which is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. That wiped up like wiped out a third of the whole population yeah, yeah. in one year. Yeah, yeah. And you think, oh my God, if something like that would have happened to the Western world, and then suddenly, which is not inconceivable, one thing or another. And then suddenly you have these small groups of people around the globe who are surviving. Hmm. <coughs> it does raise an interesting question about where we go next in terms of strategizing for change. So I've eaten a peanut and I'm coughing like crazy. <coughs> yeah. Um, because of ice melt. Yes. And, and you know, changing temperatures and certainly water, sea ice melt, and the rising water yes. levels. Yes. 
some of the work going on in China that I'm involved with is involved with that in, in, indirectly because of the choices of places where yes. I'm working. Yes. Uh, and it has to be at least 50 meters above sea level. Yes. You know, and these are not random choices. No. They're choices based upon what's known in the current of course. trajectory of yeah. the science. But building building into the narrative. Yes. The you know, building into the, the cultural story, the, the understandings of how you therefore grow in those places, yes. what you might do and, and in what ways you do it. That's where I get a very strong connection with the permaculture community. Yes. I think they've got immense resource to draw in now. After years and years of being living on the edges, their, yes. their, their per persistence in terms of Understanding that relationship between humans and the land it's critical is vital yeah but it's also contemp what's the word when you bring something into the moment contemporarizing yes yes is that a real word uh, it well, sounds like a very good it word. sounds like a good word yes yeah, well that word where you bring something to the moment and yes. you use that in the moment yes to, to to fuse the idea of the things that we've understood from the past into something that can help us to move into the future more yeah, confidently. Yeah. Then you build resilience. Then yes. you build the capability to be resilient. And and that's you know that's a storytelling process yes. just as much yes. in, a, or in, a, in a similar way, I suppose, to what yes. to what I'm ex excited about with your films because I think that. Particularly the new one, I really, really. You, yeah, the the the, the, the miracles one. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Oh wow, that's got, fantastic! I think it's got real possibilities. Yeah. Fantastic. Look forward to. Um, well, you be part of in you a series be, of episodes. <laughs> you, you be part of. Well, I I was <laughs> contemplating that. Really? Yeah, oh, I right. was because there's a obviously a current fashion for having series, you know, like yeah, Netflix yeah. and Amazon Prime and yeah. so on. But then I was thinking, yeah, but that that will pass, and um, you know, standalone stories that mm. that you can experience within a given manageable time. Mm. I I still think are going to dominate, if you know yeah. what I mean. You know, yeah, because yeah. Um, I don't it, know because a lot of these series are strung out; they string yeah. them out. And yeah. they kind of I don't know why, but the Book of Job came into my head as you were saying that. Mm. You know, okay, you know, a book within a book, but it's just a book in itself, and it's yes. like a lifetime of a book in yes. itself. It just keeps unfolding as you read it over time. But it's one book. But it's one book amongst many. Exactly. And, and but it's multiple books. It's yes. multiple stories inside the book. Yes. But that that the the the, the um the the structure of it is yes. so interesting. Yes. In in that you know we. Maybe maybe one of the things that the miracle stories explore. I'm sure you've thought this already, well and truly, because you write about things. <laughs> <laughs> but but it it hit me when I was reading it. And one of the things about the script that's interesting is the way in which um, wisdom is. I think that's the word wisdom is explored in different ways in different times. Yes. Our current form of wisdom is is 
contemporary science. Yeah. In if you if you jump back to the book of Job, that was the wisdom of the moment. Exactly. It was the way of explaining the universal yeah. constructs. Yeah. And, and and the wisdom in, in the stories that you've got is is it's like an embedded wisdom. You see yes. it. Yes. Really like a web holding together. This everything. is a very good point you're making, Paul, because I think that wisdom is something that is around us in the everyday mm. and that everybody has access to it and, 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 and so on. You don't need to be a great scientist. You don't need to be a... So I'm very interested. So when I looked at these miracles, I was very interested in the idea of exploring them from the everyday point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tangible everyday that everybody experiences. Yeah, you connect with straight away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... and um, so, so for me, a lot of that, that's what I'm interested in in my storytelling is taking some of these what would normally be confined as, as or, or thought of as kind of epic, yeah. distant epic yeah. themes and stories, and saying no, 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 they're everyday stories. They're happening around us all yeah. the time. You know, we're just not we're just not seeing it like that. You know, and that, that's the same with my cleft lip story. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. saying look. Yeah. People think of Oedipus as a kind of classic epic drama set in a in a kind in a time of famine and war and all of this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Just that story is happening right now. Yeah. In your life. Yeah. 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 That's right. It's just there. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. And and so I I so as I get older, I'm seeing that much more clearly as my role is to kind of bring these epic prototypical stories into the everyday. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Beautiful. Okay. My suggestion is yeah. that we um, draw to a close here. Okay. I'm conscious of our okay. iTunes point of reference. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> But it's been a fantastic, it's been a fantastic, a real honor and a fantastic pleasure to be part oh, of your, fun. your, your podcast. Uh, so, uh, I think it's a great idea. This, just you know. to, before we finish, just point people to, if they want to know more about what you're up to, just some oh. places and some web related Well, stuff thank you very much. I mean, my, my, I have a website, onedayfilms.com, where um, all of my work is available and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And um, that, that's kind of a gateway to, to everything, everything. So people can find your publications yeah. from there. And publications, films, films yeah. photography. And they can also find the films on Amazon. Absolutely, yeah. 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 But the, the simplest way, one day films, all written out, you know, filmsinplural.com. Eric, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure from my end. Pleasure. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Paul. <laughs> Amazing. So it's getting late in the evening now and just gone through the edits and uh, just thank you Eric for taking part in today's program. The snow's falling outside, it's jolly cold, uh, but I feel warm inside. That was a super discussion and thank you. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So Naturally Smart People is part of the Pop-Up Foundation portfolio of projects. We run activities, uh, training and development programs around the world looking towards a more resilient and sustainable future. If you want to support us, go to our website and 
that is at www.foundation.rocks. Uh, you can find out more information there and connect with us by email at paul at foundation.rocks or better still leave us a feedback on the iTunes website because that gets us a bit more profile and pushes the message. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you to Andrew from The Boats for the music. Thank you to Isaac for helping us set the sound up this time. The top and back of it are uh, my fault. The rest of it, which worked perfectly as far as I can see, is all Isaac's. So much obliged to Isaac. And um, thank you for listening. I hope you come back to us next month for our next episode of Season 3. Goodbye.